The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Born to be Breastfed with your host, Marie Biancuso. Our program aims to help you bust through the breastfeeding myths and ensure you and your baby enjoy the breastfeeding journey. Over the next hour, we'll help you figure out how to overcome the obstacles you might encounter and how to incorporate breastfeeding into your busy life. Now, here is your host, Marie Biancuso. Hi, everyone. I'm Marie Biancuto. I'm your host today for breastfeeding, uh, uh, for Born to be Breastfed. I guess I'm your host every day for Born to be Breastfed, <laughs> except that it's Monday, so I guess it's today. And lucky me, I'm here today with Tracy Castles. Tracy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Marie. I would like to welcome Tracy back to the show because actually, we did a show a month or so ago where uh, I usually when I have a guest, I call them to do like a little bit of check-in just to say, hello, want to make sure we're talking about the same thing, want to make sure I don't pr- mispronounce your name, wa- want to make sure I understand everything you're going to say. And to my utter astonishment, I realized that I didn't understand most of what Tracy was going to say. So I said, you know, let's back it up a step here. and Let's talk about normal sleep. So at the very last minute, Tracy and I planned a show where we did. We talked about normal sleep. And then I said to her, okay, great. This is a great lead in because now we get to talk uh, about specific things as related to sleep, uh, most notably sleep training. Mm -hmm. So Tracy's here today to talk with me about sleep training. So I, I still need some help with this here, Tracy, and I, I suspect probably the mothers who are listening need a little help with this, too. What exactly is sleep training? How do you define that? Generally speaking, sleep training refers to any process by which we try to change our infants or our toddlers. It extends into toddlerhood as well and even children. There's natural sleep patterns that are occurring. And... The most common form of that that exists in our society and is so common that in most studies we're looking at approximately 50% of parents utilize it is a kind of sleep training called extinction sleep training. And this would be more colloquially known as crying it out or Ah. controlled crying, controlled comforting. And in these methods, they're very specific in that you are trying to change the patterns in essence by leaving your child to cry. And it can be longer stretches. The original version of Cry It Out was focused on shut the door, leave them to cry until they fall asleep, and you repeat this process night after night. This has been modified somewhat to what people call controlled crying, and now to make it sound a bit more palatable has been changed to controlled comforting, (laughs) but they are the same. And in this case, you set up uh, distances. So you might shut the door, let your child cry for one minute. And then you go in, pat them on the back. You don't pick them up. You don't engage them. You just 
in a sense, you're trying to say, I'm here, but I'm not. Uh-huh, and then okay. you go back out again and then you wait two minutes, then five minutes, then 10 minutes, then 20 minutes. And so it's more of a graduated uh, withdrawal from the child who learns that, well, uh, what they learn is something we can talk about in a little bit. But that is, in essence, the most prominent forms of sleep training that take place. But they are by no means the only forms. Yet when we speak about sleep training, that is what most people think about. Well, I definitely know what crying it out is. Yes. Because I have seen that a a gajillion times myself, either as a nurse in a hospital. I can also tell you that there are times when I have looked at babies and I have said, honey, you are dry and fed and, you know, this and that and the other thing. And I don't know what else to do with you, so you're going to have to cry. But I always feel like that just seems really weird to me. It feels like I'm really doing something wrong. And I don't understand why parents don't have that reaction, but I guess it is that they've they've been told that this crying it out or uh what was the other thing? Controlled crying okay. is is an okay thing. Now, how prevalent would you say this is, at least here in the U.S., Tracy? Uh, it's From what we know in terms of survey studies, it looks to be at least 50% of parents will use it at some uh, time or another. Is there any relationship between the, uh, and I'm sorry if I'm putting you on the spot here, mm-hmm. between breastfeeding parents and formula feeding parents, which ones are more likely to do the crying it out? There is, and it's such a tricky topic to to bring up. But oh, but well, we're here, so go. Yeah, we're here. Yes, it is. <laughs> there does seem to be uh, some research. Notably, Dr. Helen Ball looked oh, at yeah. a qualitative study talking to mothers about their beliefs about sleep and um, their utilization of these types of extinction sleep training methods and feeding status and possibly not surprising for anyone who breastfeeds. It is more commonly endorsed by those who are formula feeding. And in fact, sometimes the switch to formula is done with the hopes of sleep training in mind uh, under the belief that you'll get longer sleep periods. It will be easier to do if you're formula feeding. So there is, there does seem to be a relationship that it is more common with formula feeding, at least the mentality based on the research we have, or a switch to formula in order to enable it. And this is likely due to the fact that breastfeeding, especially nighttime breastfeeding, becomes very difficult to continue if you plan on opting for very long stretches of time without, uh, without feeding, which is what inherently what has to happen with sleep training. Yeah, you know, as soon as you mentioned Helen Ball's study, immediately my little ding, ding, ding went on in my head because I think that she's just a phenomenally excellent researcher. She's amazing. Amazing, (laughs) yeah. And I remember when that study first came out and I read it with my eyes kind of popping out of my head. But as I hear you talking tonight, I'm also thinking about mothers that do what I call pump and feed. That is, they are giving milk to their baby from their breasts, but they are not breastfeeding. And I I've also seen them, you know, just one nurse's observations do not a study make. But it seems to me that that is also part of that whole idea of putting the baby in the the, the room and closing the door and, and moving on. So what is the purpose of sleep training or what are its presumed benefits? 
Well, I think for many people, the purpose is to get more sleep. And for the parents to get more sleep. For the parents to get more sleep. Yeah. But okay. this also is catched. You will see some nurses, some doctors, many experts claim that the purpose is really that you have to teach your child to sleep. That if you don't do that, your child will not learn how to sleep. So this is where we get back to something you touched on briefly earlier, saying that you thought it would be uncomfortable for parents to do sleep training, but they seem to think it's best. And it's true. It is very uncomfortable for most parents. You can read articles about how distressing it is for a parent to engage in this, and they go through all sorts of hoops to try and lessen their own distress as they listen to their infant crying. But they do it under the belief that they're actually doing something very beneficial for their child. So I think most parents, if they thought it was solely about their own sleep, would not want to engage in these methods. Oh, interesting. But so I, so they're, they're thinking that training is kind of like potty training, only it's sleep training. It's just something you have to do. Exactly. They view it as a necessary evil. I've heard that word used. Oh, Lord. That okay. they, without doing this, they're, they believe they're actually harming their child without doing this. And that's quite unfortunate because that's actually not the case at all. But those are the benefits that tend to get touted by people is, and you can read it if you read some of the more prominent books that advocate sleep training and early sleep training, they, you know, suggest that if you don't do it, you're going to have a spoiled brat. You're going to have a child that will never sleep through the night and you're going to send them off to university, you know, unable to sleep away (laughs) from you. And, you know, you and I know, and many others can testify that that's actually not the case. Not true. No. I consider myself a reasonably intelligent, accomplished human being, and I'm very sure that my mother did not know anything about sleep training. Um, I I, I guess also, I just keep going back to, um, I didn't spend too many years working in the newborn nursery, but I certainly did do it. And it was almost always at night. And I felt really creepy about ignoring somebody else's child and they're not even my kid. Do you know what I'm saying, Tracy? Yeah, I do. It just felt so wrong to me. But there really truly are times when I've just been out of ideas and I'm like, honey, I don't know what else to do with you and I'm not your mother and I can't breastfeed you. So, you know, uh, so, so I think I'm starting to understand this now. And, and you're saying that parents are feeling like this is sort of a duty of, of parenthood and that somehow the kid is better off for it. Tracy, would you feel uncomfortable if I asked you, are there some big names uh, in in sleep training of, of advocates for, for oh, sleep training? Absolutely. There's, I mean, in terms of the more popular baby experts, not academics, you've got Tizzy Hall, you've got Gina Ford. Um, in terms of academics, out here in BC, we have Dr. Wendy Hall, who's a nursing instructor, oh, yeah. who's a big advocate. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Um, there's a recently a book came out, well, not too recently, I guess a couple of years ago, called The Newborn Sleep Book by two pediatricians in Long Island, the Jessen brothers. I think okay. it's Jessen. I can't remember. So there's actually, and then, of course, it's known also as the ferberization method from... Oh, right, Dr. right, right, right. Yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. So we go back to, there are some very big names of people that do advocate for it. And unfortunately, I think there's a push by them to look at it solely as an issue of sleep without looking at the whole entirety of the relationship with the child, the child's mental well-being, uh, and the possibility that there may be other ways to achieve what parents are looking for 
without... Yeah, that we're going to talk about some of this downside on the other side of the break. Tracy, I'm just... Uh, I kind of want to back up a minute to mm-hmm. Wendy Hall. Yes. Because as, as you know, I teach my lactation, uh, my comprehensive lactation course literally from coast to coast. As a matter of fact, I'm kind of a blithering idiot here today because <laughs> I just finished a, a big marathon of traveling. But I had some woman in one of my courses come up to me and say, but Wendy Hall says mm-hmm. how easily and how quickly you can get these kids sleep trained. In the minute or so before we go to break, uh, just tell Tell me, am I wrong to insist to the person in my class that sleep training is not necessarily something that the breastfeeding mother should want to do? Am I I getting it right? You've got it absolutely right. It's not something that a mother should necessarily want to do or feel she has to do. Has to do. All righty. Because I got to tell you, you know, I just felt like here am I, a just one humble nurse who has never conducted any research. This is kind of really out of my league anyway. And I know that Wendy Hall is sort of one of the names. And I feel like I'm not much of a position to argue with somebody who, you know, seems to be pretty well respected in that community. But it just also seems to me that if you really believe in baby-led feeding, then somehow the antithesis of that seems to me like it would be telling the baby how and when to sleep because yeah. the time that he eats is when he's awake. So, exactly. so that's, that's just sort of my take on that. Hey, everybody, don't go away because this is one of the coolest shows we've done. <laughs> I'm Marie Biancuso. I'm here with Tracy Castles. We will be right back after this short break. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Do you enjoy listening to Marie Biancuso? Do you think your staff would enjoy listening to Marie? As the past president of Baby Friendly USA, Marie currently offers baby-friendly training programs, online only, live only, or a combination of live and online education. If you are tired of listening to a boring lecture in a dark room, watching bullet point slides with a brief chance for questions at the end, come and enjoy a truly interactive learning online or live program with Marie. Call Marie today at 703-787-9894 to find an option that works for your staff. Breastfeeding Outlook, owned and operated by Marie Biancuso, is America's premier provider of breastfeeding education. If you're a nurse, lactation consultant, dietitian, midwife, physician, doula, or other professional, Breastfeeding Outlook is your source for SERPs, nursing contact hours, and CEUs to meet your certification or licensure requirements in all 50 states. Join Marie at a seminar in one of many U.S. cities or learn online. Marie has helped thousands to pass the IBLCE exam on the first try, and she can help you too. Call to find out how to get an easy payment plan for Marie's IBLCE exam prep course. And if your hospital is seeking the baby-friendly hospital designation, we can help you with that too through expert training and value-based consultation. We have a variety of packages to meet your needs without breaking your budget. Sign up for a live or online course or inquire about training today. Please visit breastfeedingoutlook.com or call us at 703-787-9894. 
evidence for your practice starts here. Visit breastfeedingoutlook.com or call us at 703-787-9894. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Listening to Born to Be Breastfed. To reach Marie Biancuso or her guest on today's program, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to radio at born to be breastfed.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everyone. I'm Marie Biancuto. I'm your host for Born to be Breastfed, and I'm here today with sleep expert Tracy Castles, Ph.D. Tracy has been talking to us about sleep training, a.k.a. crying it out. And Tracy's helped us to understand that there is definitely some downside to this crying it out. Tracy, I feel like I, we just never have enough time to talk on this show. But before we get to, uh, I, I kind of want to go back to the part about how they're knowing all this stuff. But tell us about what would be the adverse effects of this sleep training or crying it out. Well, one of the things I want to be clear about is that we don't actually have a lot of information conclusively about the risks of crying it out because we just okay. don't have research on it. Okay. okay. What we do have is a lot of what I like to call circumstantial evidence. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. um, so we're kind of connecting the dots, but we're not holding the smoking gun in hand. And <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so what we have, we have the first bit of research, which was a very preliminary study, but opened eyes onto the effect of cortisol um, during extinction sleep training, crying it out. And this research was done by Dr. Wendy Middlemiss and colleagues. And often it gets dismissed because it was a preliminary study. She never meant this to be extensive. There's a lot that has to be followed up on. But as a preliminary study, it, it gives hints as to what we should be looking at. And they looked at the infant cortisol levels Um, before sleep training and after the infants had fallen asleep over a three-day period at a sleep clinic in New Zealand. And the interesting part was they found there were two notable findings. One was that even on day three, the infants no longer cried out before going to bed. So by all accounts, the sleep training had worked. But they still showed very high levels of cortisol, which is indicative of distress. I'm thinking if I was a baby, I'd just give up by the third day. And that's what, in essence, seems to be what happened. Now, there was a lot of variability amongst the infants, but there is a lot of variability amongst cortisol levels between people. But perhaps more notably, what they found was very significant was that what had been lost was the synchrony between the mother and oh, the infant. Yeah, sleep and synchrony. we spoke about synchrony last time and that yes. important bond between mother yes. and child. Yes. And that was gone not only at nighttime, but had actually lost its significance during the day as well. So one of the possible risky effects is that it seems that you can lose that bond, that relationship that helps you better calm and comfort your child in other times of distress. So that's one of the bigger things. We also, I look to, there's a book, um, 
pardon me, I'm drawing a blank on a name here. I can't believe it. Uh, Bruce you're Perry's too young book. For, you're too young I, for a senior uh, moment. You know what? It, it's the lack of sleep moment that I'm... <laughs> <laughs> I gotcha. Because I'm not sleep training. I'm up feeding all night. So this you, is... You have a three-month-old. I do. I do. And he's now actually back on with me right now. So, yeah, but I've been up with him feeding all night. So uh, Bruce Perry, his work, Dr. Bruce Perry, looks oh, yeah. at trauma uh-huh. in children. And he has okay. a book, The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog. And there's one case in it that really stood out to me because he argues that contrary to what people who sleep train say, you hear a lot about babies are resilient. They can handle this kind of stuff. He argues, no, you're not born resilient. Resilience is something that's shaped through responsiveness. And we don't know what triggers one child's traumatic response versus another's. Because we can see two kids that may look like they're undergoing the exact same experience and respond differently. But for one, the traumatic experience can be great. And he had one case where there was a boy who was an infant, was left with a sitter all day from 8 to 5, and this child was ignored all day, just left in the crib to cry and not responded to. As soon as the parents came home, the child was responded to, there was interactions, and on the surface, it looks a lot like sleep training if you just put the daytime for nighttime. And as you know... Babies don't really have a great sense of day versus night. When their needs need to be met, they need to be met. And this boy endured long-term trauma. It required a lot of work to get him out of his shell. And why he experienced it, we don't know. We know that there's probably other factors about temperament, personality, uh, possibly just the exact stage that his brain was developing at that point. Uh, may have influenced it. So we have the cortisol levels that possibly increase. We have known possible links to things like PTSD or other types of trauma for young infants. Uh, We also have uh, effects on the vagal nerve, the vagus response. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. Uh Uh-huh. And that kind of nerve does not, it requires responsiveness and touch, et cetera, in order to... um, pull the brakes off, so to speak, which allows it, which allows an infant to better calm themselves. Being left on their own, they are not going to be able to do that themselves. The vagus nerve being the one of the, it, it is the longest nerve in the body, by the way. It is. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And wow. then we have the other bits that come in are later on when we look at emotion regulation in children and just the effects of sensitive, responsive parenting, we see that type of parenting linked to greater empathy. Uh, greater emotion regulation in older children. We see it linked to better academic performance, um, cognitive social skills. So it's associated with a host of great outcomes. And interestingly, these are some of the outcomes we're seeing declines in um, across generations. Um, excuse me, is, is there any relationship between sleep training and abuse? Not that I know of uh, in terms of a research perspective. It's, as I said, you know, Bruce Perry's work in that one case, you saw what was clearly would have been defined as abuse during the day, complete neglect of the child. Um, But again, if you were nighttime, it would be a common parenting practice for, you know, half of families. So it becomes difficult. Yeah, I don't. Mm -hmm. And. And then you have to disentangle abuse versus neglect. I mean, they're both forms sure. of abuse, but... But nonetheless, yeah. But nonetheless, exactly. So 
I think one of the main problems that research faces is that there are different, there are going to be people who engage in sleep training temporarily, see it doesn't work, go back to being responsive. Uh, there are going to be some whose children take to it very quickly and seemingly are okay. You're going to have children who have a lot of problems. You're going to have families who extend this type of uh, detached parenting, innocent detached parenting practices into the daytime, and there'll be some that don't. And you end up with so many different subgroups that when you try to look at what's actually happening, it becomes very difficult to see what really are the long-term effects. Uh, in certain subgroups, we do know that people speak out against this type of sleep training adamantly. So, for instance, children with sensory processing disorders, autism spectrum, any child actually with higher levels of anxiety, it is often very clear that they should not engage in this type of sleep training because it has long-term trust effects, long-term um, negative effects on the child's social and emotional well-being. So, Tracy, we've talked about some of these outcomes that you just got out of your mouth here a minute ago. Yeah. But I want to know a little bit more about real outcomes. How do people like, uh, for instance, Wendy Hall, how does she know that these kids are really asleep or that they are more easily awakened or, or like what's the yardstick to measure with? Help me here. Well, that's the interesting part, because for the longest time, our measuring stick was parent report. A parent suddenly says, my child's sleeping through the night now. Isn't this wonderful? They're sleeping 12 hours. Oh, well, I've and, lived long enough to know that what parents report and what they perceive are <laughs> often different than the real situation. It's And that's, interestingly enough, there is the most recent work by Wendy Hall. It was called the Rocky Mountain Sleep Study. She was asked to include an objective measurement of infant sleep because a lot of her push has been claiming that this helps infant sleep, that you're doing this to help infants need to learn this skill by being forced to learn it, really. Yeah. And so this study included a measure of, of the outcome. So they included um, actiograph study to look at the infants. And lo and behold, although parents once again report improvement in sleep, ex, you know, the whole nine yards, when they looked at the actiograph data, there was actually no difference between the infants who were sleep trained and those who weren't. So these infants were not suddenly sleeping full stretches. They were waking just like the other babies. They just weren't signaling anymore. And see, that is just so mind boggling to me because that tells me again it, it seems like the baby is just like, well, forget it. She's not coming, so I might just as well shut up and put up, right? I, I think that's fair. I think that's actually a lot of kids give up, and I think that's why you see some kids don't give up. Uh, uh, and that's uh -huh. when you see a lot of kind of failed, quote-unquote, failed sleep training that many families engage in is they either see that this child is not uh, not taking it, so to speak, and there was a study that looked at how it was working with families engaged in controlled crying. And there were some parents that reported having to do it night after night for over a month and still no success. So you have kids that really will not take part in any of it. Then you saw, I have worked with families who said they tried it and they immediately saw a change in their child. Uh, their kid was no longer the same as they put it. Uh, and uh -huh. 
so they had to stop it because they felt it was really detrimental to their child's well-being. Um, but yeah, but and at the end of the day, it doesn't look like it really actually is changing their sleep very much. So, Wendy, what about these people that they do it at three months, they come back and they say, wow, look at this, I've gotten my baby to sleep. And then, you know, a couple of months later, they say, eh, uh, not so much, so baby is awake again. How, how do you explain that? Well, I think that's actually... I see that a lot, and I see it not okay. only at three months, then six months, then a year, but you'll see it long-term. I've seen bloggers who advocate for it who suddenly are describing, well, now that she's a toddler, we're going through this form of sleep training, and I expect Whoa. we'll see problems again at three and four and five. And they seem to have accepted that sleep is going to be an ongoing battle. And I think it comes from the fact that when you sleep train, inherently what's happening is that you are teaching your child that nighttime is not safe. Whether that's the intent of what you're teaching or not, that's what's happening. The infant does not get to feel safe and secure because they're being left in a very scary environment for a child. Absolutely. And the fear is flooding them. So anytime they get a chance, if they feel like they can come back and, you know, maybe it's they've learned to be more vocal. So now let's try again and see if we can get that response. So they fall back out of it. Um, or it may be a lot of families report problems after going on vacation when suddenly they have the chance to actually respond to their child at night. They're all in the same room. Oh, you can't uh -huh. shut them uh -huh. in. Right, Often they right. end up co-sleeping because, you know, you've got a couple beds. Your kid's yep. in bed with you. That uh -huh. kid has this week of responsiveness and touch and suddenly nighttime is safe again. And they want that as soon as they get back. Absolutely. So this is really one of the bigger issues that comes to play is that sleep training is not a permanent fix. You're not, and that raises questions about how well are you actually teaching your child to sleep if you have to keep coming back to it over and over again. Yeah, that sounds to me like it's a, it's a, a short-term fix if it's a fix, but it's a short-term whatever that has a very distinct possibility of kind of coming to bite you in the butt later. <laughs> wow. All right, Tracy, um, so much to talk about. Hey, look at everybody. Uh, stay tuned. I'm Marie Biancuso. I'll be right back with Tracy Castles right after this message. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Do you enjoy listening to Marie Biancuzo? Do you think your staff would enjoy listening to Marie? As the past president of Baby Friendly USA, Marie currently offers baby-friendly training programs, online only, live only, or a combination of live and online education. If you are tired of listening to a boring lecture in a dark room, watching bullet point slides with a brief chance for questions at the end, come and enjoy a truly interactive learning online or live program with Marie. Call Marie today at 703-787-9894 to find an option that works for your staff. Was your breastfeeding experience stressful or challenging? Did you face an unusual obstacle and go on to meet your goals? If so, we'd like to hear from you, and so would other mothers. Email radio at borntobebreastfed.com to see if you can be Marie's next guest. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Born to be Breastfed. 
To reach Marie Biancuso or her guest on today's program, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to radio at borntobebreastfed.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everyone. I'm Marie Biancuto. I'm your host for Born to be Breastfed. I'm here today with Tracy Castles. Tracy, we were talking about the adverse effects of sleep training. So I get it. There's a real downside to it. What bothers me is, uh, is there any way to undo the negative effects if they do happen? Well, yeah, and I think it's first important to point out that not all parents will report seeing any negative effects. Um, okay. Many, yeah, many parents think they've actually, everything's gone very well. Of course, okay. we don't know that because yeah. you have kids who may not, ha- they've accepted their fate. They're now going to bed without signaling. We seem to know they're not actually sleeping through the night as parents seem to perceive, but they keep quiet. How that affects them long term we're not entirely sure. Some will show very noticeable negative effects. And I mentioned I've worked with families who have spoken about seeing a very drastic change in their child right away after engaging with it. And for this, I think one of the most important things to know is that you're not undoing the effects, so to speak. As you know, it's something you and I had talked about, the idea of reversing or undoing. It kind of treats it like it never happened. And that's not really the way it works. What you're doing is trying to re- rewire the brain, so to speak, in developing these pathways of responsiveness. And as simple as it sounds, it's obviously easier said than done, but the way to do it is simply to go back to being responsive nighttime parents, is to ditch the sleep training, possibly bring your child closer for a period, get to cuddling them back to sleep again, um, do you know, be willing to go see them in the middle of the night if they wake up. Don't put limits on, if they're an older child, you don't want to put limits on, no, you can only get out of bed once in the middle of the night. The goal is to make sure that they feel safe and secure at nighttime. You want night to be an amazing experience. You want them to love sleep as much as you do, which is why you want all the sleep in the first place. (laughs) In the first place. (laughs) So the goal is to make sure that they love their sleep. And to do that, you have to feel safe. And so anything that allows that type of responsiveness, like we talked about being on vacation, you're almost forced to co-sleep, you're forced to be responsive. That exact thing is what children need. And that will relay new pathways that enable them to feel that they are being responded to, they are heard, and they can feel safe, almost regardless of what's happened before, especially just in terms of sleep training, if we're not talking about other extreme abuse or neglect or anything like that. Tracy, if you said safe once, you've said it a dozen times just since we've come back from the, the, the break. Yes. And I'm thinking about the old um, uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, mm-hmm. that safety is on the bottom rung, if I remember correctly. It is. Air, water, food, safety. Am I, am I, yeah. am I getting yeah. it right? <laughs> they need, well, there's the basic, the air, water, food, and then safety is right above there. We need, to, yes, they're all mixed in. And there's arguments that his hierarchy, that for infants, actually safety may come even before their perceived need for food and everything. So, which is really interesting, but they really need to feel safe and secure because they are a 
completely dependent upon us. I, absolutely, absolutely. Their sense of safety is immense. They, if they don't feel it, they will adapt. And I think this is what people forget is people think of adaptations as always being somehow beneficial. Look, they learn to adapt to the environment they're in. But adaptations are not always great. We can adapt to a lot. We've adapted to a modern lifestyle in terms of our stress responses by actually doing things that make stress worse for us. And it's led us to a variety of diseases like hypertension, um, diabetes, etc. So we've adapted, but not really in a way that's ideal. And infants can adapt to an environment that they are not responded, they don't feel safe. The question we have to be asking ourselves is, is that the type of environment is that the type of adaptation, pardon me, that they, we want for them? Tracy, what do we know about um, animals, our furry friends? I mean, I realize we're animals, but um, what do we know about animals and their sleep state? And uh, it, it seems to me like I have learned so much about how little puppies or little kitties or or uh, any, any and of, uh, other mammals and how they treat their young. I, I cannot imagine... Uh, you know, a mother kitty trying to sleep train <laughs> kitties. Do, do we know anything about any, any corollaries there? Yeah, we don't. As far as I know, um, in terms of mammals, we do not have animals that or we don't see that type of nighttime separation. Co-sleeping is the mammalian norm. And it's particularly the norm for primates. Yes. So yes. we, yeah, we just don't seem to see it. I mean, obviously animals tell us some things. We don't eat our young like rats do. So well, yeah. we probably <laughs> don't want to go too far into thinking that the animals tell us everything we need to know. But it is a very good window into seeing what is, you know, biologically natural for an animal state. So I just and, remember... Years ago, I was coming out of Gainesville, Florida. I'd just done a program there, and it became apparent to me that our plane was not getting off the tarmac. And I was sort of too tired to work and too sleepy to, you know, I was just really not focusing. And so I kind of made friends with my seatmate, who turned out to be a veterinarian. And wow, some of the things, apparently horses were her specialty. And some of the things that she told me about the birthing practices and the parenting practices of the horse and the, I think it's the foal, I'm thinking, great, the vets have got this figured out. And the docs and the nurses for humans don't, you know. And she was talking about how valuable colostrum was. And I'm like, whoa, you know. And so that's what prompted my question. But I think you're right. When we look at primates, I'm also going to have Dia Michaels on the show uh later spoiler alert yeah Uh, (laughs) dia talks a lot about mammals and i'll see if i can run this by her as well so then here's the deal we all want to get more sleep all right and if we don't do sleep training by what other means can we help our kids to settle down and thus get a good night's rest for ourselves how do we do that well, I mean, first I want to say sleep training, we're talking about extinction sleep training here. Okay, okay. Um, because there are gentle methods. There's um, various people that offer a lot of gentle guidance. It's a lot of what I do when I work with clients individually is finding ways to help the family um, in a 
appropriate way without putting the burden on the infant. And this is, I think, the biggest thing that we come back to and it, what I always come back to is you want to find out, first off, are the parents' expectations in line? Yeah. Is the infant, are they, you know, expecting something that just isn't biologically plausible? Yeah. You want 12 hours of sleep from your three-month-old. Well, you may be able to get it, but that's not biologically normal and certainly not inherently healthy for your child right. um, to go that long without feeding, especially if you're a breastfeeding mother, to go that long without feeding. And even for an infant, when you look at SIDS risk, those deep sleeps become Absolutely. of issue. So if that's the case, really what I find it comes down to is a lot of education about what is biologically normal. But even Which, by the way, that, is why we did the show last time. Exactly. Because I, yeah. <laughs> I was exactly. feeling like, we really got to talk about normal here. Okay. Exactly. So first you have to just make sure that the expectations are in line. And especially in a society where the expectations are completely skewed. Families are being told crazy things about their infant sleep. And so it becomes really hard to accept that, oh, but at two, my child still wakes up a couple times a night. And families will panic about that. And often it can be as simple as pointing out, well, how much do you wake up at night to go to the bathroom or do something? And they get a, oh, yeah, actually, I do. Um, to realize that this night waking is actually quite normal. But there are children for whom there are bigger problems. Um, they are waking regularly. And I think we touched on it last time. I can't remember. But regardless, I always try to tell people sleep is like the canary in the coal mine. It's telling you something's wrong, but it's not the problem per se. And this is where a lot of my work comes down to families is trying to disentangle why the child's waking. And very frequently you'll see feeding problems crop up. Mm -hmm. So a mother who's breastfeeding but whose child has a tongue tie that's undiagnosed right. will have a cluster feeder who's hungry, not getting necessarily a lot of food. Mom's also then suffering more because she's in pain from latching and everything. And the solution can be as simple as, okay, you need to get that released. And suddenly they see massive changes because the baby can feed well enough to allow for longer stretches of sleep, not 12 hours, but possibly getting, you know, say three hours at a time four hours, depending on the age. Sometimes a child has reflex or a silent oh, reflex, mm -hmm. which is overdiagnosed often, but I when agree. it's real, but nonetheless, yes. Yeah, mm -hmm. When it's real, it's very, very difficult for families. If they're being told it's not real and they're the ones suffering from it, sure. Sure. they see a lot of problems. So I think a lot of the time it comes down to trying to discover what is actually happening with the child. Uh, uh, back to the not only the child, Tracy, but I'm wondering about what I call these nervous Nellies. Yes, I was about uh, to get to that. Uh, well, okay, go. Thanks, here. It's yeah. I was going to say that sometimes it's not even the child has something wrong. It's the parent's own anxiety. When we talked about synchrony, and that passes through to a parent, sometimes they're actually inhibiting their child from sleeping yeah. because they're so panicked about it. It yep. that passes on the state to the child who then struggles to fall asleep just as you or I would struggle to fall asleep if we were suddenly very amped up and nervous. Yes, yes. So well, there's... One of the yep. things I noticed from working in a newborn nursery at night was if I 
went to work, maybe I had driven in a snowstorm or, you know, I came in being a nervous Nellie, I swear that none of those kids would go to sleep. <laughs> and it's as though I, I, I really believed that I was giving off some sort of pheromone or something that, that the babies realized she's a nervous Nellie. So we've got to be awake in case there really is a danger. Yeah. And it really made me wonder if kids sense when the adult is, you know, like over, over vigilant. And they do. That's exactly what synchrony speaks to is that we see this bi-directional relationship where we influence our children's um, physiology, their sense of well-being, but they and they influence ours. So when a baby gets worked up, if we can't remain calm, we hit a vicious cycle. So the child that doesn't sleep, who may have struggled at the beginning, the more nervous and amped up you get, the more you make them amped up and nervous. And then the less likely they are to sleep. And then you get worse and they get worse. And it becomes this really bad cycle. Yeah, yeah. I'm so with you there, Tracy. I am so with you. Well, um, I got to tell you, this is so interesting. And when we come back, uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about secure attachment and some of Tracy's recommendations for uh, how you can help yourself and your, your child. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this short break. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. What's the weirdest place I've ever done it? Probably at my niece's high school musical during intermission. I've done it on an airplane. In our minivan while his mother was driving. Hi, Mom. What's the weirdest place I've ever pumped? Probably the car dealership. In the bathroom at my sister's wedding. Finding a good place to pump can be hard. Donating breast milk is easy. No matter where you've pumped, you'd make a good donor to the Mother's Milk Bank at Austin. Learn how your milk can save lives at milkbank.org slash donor. Breastfeeding Outlook, owned and operated by Marie Biancuso, is America's premier provider of breastfeeding education. If you're a nurse, lactation consultant, dietitian, midwife, physician, doula, or other professional, Breastfeeding Outlook is your source for SERPs, nursing contact hours, and CEUs to meet your certification or licensure requirements in all 50 states. Join Marie at a seminar in one of many U.S. cities or learn online. Marie has helped thousands to pass the IBLCE exam on the first try, and she can help you too. Call to find out how to get an easy payment plan for Marie's IBLCE exam prep course. And if your hospital is seeking the baby-friendly hospital designation, we can help you with that too through expert training and value-based consultation. We have a variety of packages to meet your needs without breaking your budget. Sign up for a live or online course or inquire about training today. Please visit breastfeedingoutlook.com or call us at 703-787-9894. Evidence for your practice starts here. Visit breastfeedingoutlook.com or call us at 703-787-9894. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Born to be Breastfed. 
To reach Marie Biancuso or her guest on today's program, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to radio at borntobebreastfed.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everyone. I'm Marie Biancuto, and I'm here today to finish up with sleep expert Tracy Castles. Tracy, talk to us a little bit about secure attachment. That's sort of one of the words or phrases that I hear going around a lot. And maybe along with that, help us to understand why there are some kids who really don't seem to be bothered by sleep training that is crying it out, uh, they seem to just do okay. Uh, and I think that those two things are related. Uh, go Tracy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, secure attachment for anyone that doesn't know is really the term we use to discuss how comfortable and safe a child feels, the type of relationship they have with their caregivers. And you want a secure attachment. It's the sign that your child trusts you, feels that they can go to you, that you're a safe uh, home base for them in exploring the world. And oftentimes the fear by many when you talk about crying it out and controlled crying is that that relationship, the trust there is being broken. Mm-hmm. And, but as many parents would probably jump on right now and say, excuse me, I have a wonderful relationship with my child <laughs> and crying it out did no harm whatsoever. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so the two are not antithetical. It is not and. Hopefully, no one's suggesting that if you sleep train, you automatically do not have a secure attachment. Or that you're a bad parent. Or a bad parent or anything. What you have are, as I had hoped I was clear, are the increased risks of some of these negative outcomes. And the degree to which these risks are uh, real or probable will depend on a lot of different variables. Uh, Most notably, variables pertaining to your child's personality. Uh, or disposition. So we talk a lot uh, in the sleep area about children who are more sensitive or kind of the more difficult, higher needs children. These are the ones where you're probably more likely to see a lot of negative adverse outcomes with something like sleep training. They have been called orchid children. Uh, They're ones where some researchers have referred to the fact that anything, quote, less than optimal parenting has been used to say that if they have anything less than optimal, they show negative outcomes. Wow. And, and so these kids are, are very real, but they are also not the majority of children. Sure. So when you talk about a lot of families who have tried sleep training, if you have a child who is, you know, possibly not as high needs, uh, lower on the anxiety scale, lower on the sensitivity scale, you might have a child that seemingly does fine. I would argue you're still going to see a change. They still have to adapt. And this returns to the question of what kind of adaptations do you want to see and how beneficial are they? Um, But it may be a case of you're not harming too greatly, but we also have to be clear that you're not actually helping them greatly either. But it's certainly that, Tracy, that that we are not actually helping this baby. I would stand by that. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. I don't think we're actually helping. Um, we may be helping the parent yes, in terms of a parent who's struggling to sleep and everything. But saying that you're helping the child makes a presumption that there's no other way to do this. Ah, okay. And 
that is where I really get down to it. Even if you have a child who's struggling with sleep for, as we talked about, one of the many reasons that can lead to it, to assume that you need to engage in extinction methods is to assume that there's no other possible means to help your child. And that I stand by is never the case. Okay. That there is always other methods. The problem is what we get into is that they take time. There is no quick fix. And even this that seems to work, I think if it works as a quick fix, you're often really due to some other changes that might take place. So, for instance, lots of families who engage in sleep training, we talked at the very beginning, end up switching to formula. And sometimes if there's been a feeding problem that's led to the lack of sleep, that becomes, quote unquote, fixed by the switch to formula. So suddenly the sleep training seems to be working, but in reality what's happened is you've removed the barrier to sleep in the first place by ignoring the breastfeeding problems, but finding the replacement of formula. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes a lot of sense to me, and it also helps me to understand why, at least here in the U.S., fewer than 12%, excuse me, it's just a shade over 12% of women are exclusively breastfeeding their babies at six months. It's because there are a number of factors, and, you know, there are a number of factors. I'm not trying to blame just sleep here. But I'm seeing that there is this real uh, pull to, I got to get more sleep, I got to get more rest, I've got to take care of myself. And so I can really see where the formula is looking good there. Yeah. And if it leads to something like this, where they feel that they can get more sleep, it benefits them. Um, And they may want to say, it helped my child. My child was sleep deprived before. But again, that presumes that no other method would have helped their child through. And I can say, working with many families, that that really isn't the case. I haven't had, I haven't seen a need for the child to undergo sleep training at any point, um, extinction sleep training, even if it may have been the parent that felt they had to undergo it for their mental health. Tracy, in the minute or two we have left, tell us about some good books that you would recommend that parents read so that they can make some, I'm big on informed choice. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, so some of my favorites are, I love The Gentle Sleep Book by Sarah Ockwell Smith. Um, She's in the UK and wonderful. I actually loved enough. I wrote the the foreword for it. Um, So I clearly have a a view (laughs) on it that I like it. Um, Oh, sorry. Here's my little guy waking up here. (laughs) Um, He had fallen asleep on me while we did this. And I love Pinky McKay's Sleeping Like a Baby. Mm, She's in Australia. Another Australian book that I adore and deals a lot with the feeding issues is The Discontented Little Baby Book Uh, by Dr. Pamela Douglas. And she's, yes, a... Um, lactation consultant, a researcher, and a pediatrician um, or family doctor. I'm not sure if it's pediatrician or family doctor, but her she talks a lot about the various feeding problems that lead to sleep th- that lead to sleep problems, and that ends up being very helpful, I think, for families to really get details on what might be some of these feeding problems that affect sleep. Okay. Uh, that goes through. So those are kind of my three favorites, I think, in terms of just sleep books. And so then, Tracy, the the big question would be, how do parents find you? (laughs) Me, I have, so I do, as I said, Mm -hmm. I do work with families. um, And, but I also have written articles on some stuff that can help families kind of try and 
identify what might be wrong to work with it. So I have my website, which is evolutionaryparenting.com. And there you can find me. I have uh, consultation services listed there. We're actually doing a revamp of the site this week, so it might be down for a few days. Um, Hopefully not, but we're hoping everything transfers okay. But you never know with technology. uh, But I also have my email if people want to get in touch directly, which is just Tracy, T-R-A-C-Y, at evolutionaryparenting.com. Excellent. Well, as usual, uh, this has been extremely enlightening, uh, but that's all the time we have for today. Before we sign off, I'd like to thank Tracy Castles for not only today, but for a very informative session uh, last time. Tracy, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me both times as well, Marie. It's been wonderful. I'd especially like to thank all of you for listening. If we didn't have our listeners, we wouldn't have a show. We have great listeners. We have great guests. And today we even had Tracy's baby who was listening and participating. (laughs) How good does it get? So I'd like to invite all of you to come back next week. If you're interested in books or other media that was mentioned on this show or previous shows, check out my Amazon store. And how do you do that? Well, just visit borntobebreastfed.com and we will try to get three those three books that Tracy mentioned up. And again, I will pe- repeat that. It's borntobebreastfed.com for books and media or my blog or for parents who are listening. Uh, you can check out my Facebook too. Feel free to leave a question for me or Tracy or any of our guests. And by the way, remember to like us while you're there. If you're a professional and you're looking for continuing education about breastfeeding and lactation, remember, I'm your source for evidence-based practice and education on the web and sometimes in your city. I will be in Baltimore, um, I think, not next month, but the month after. Uh, My courses and tons of resources and my blog and much more are on my professional website, breastfeedingoutlook.com. Again, that's breastfeedingoutlook.com. I'm Marie Biancuzzo, and I promise I'll help you to cut through the myths and clarify the facts about breastfeeding next Monday, same time, same channel. In the meanwhile, remember, your baby, just like Tracy's baby, was born to be breastfed. Have a great week. Thank you for tuning in this week to Born to be Breastfed. Please join Marie Biancuzo next Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. This week, do its best for you and your baby. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.